Hi, I'm Kyle from Golden Valley, Minnesota, a Walmart scholar attending the AACP annual meeting from the University of Minnesota College of Pharmacy in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You're listening to Pharmacy Forward, a podcast about transforming knowledge into action. In this episode, we talk with Dr. Laura Borgelt, professor in the Departments of Clinical Pharmacy and Family Medicine at the University of Colorado Skaggs School of Pharmacy and Pharmaceutical Sciences, about recreational marijuana use and its potential health impacts. Hi there, this is Stuart Haynes, one of the hosts for the Pharmacy Forward podcast, and I'm joined by my co-host, Chase Board, a PGY1 community pharmacy resident from the University of Mississippi School of Pharmacy. Hello and welcome. Our topic today focuses on the recreational use of marijuana and its potential health consequences. Marijuana is now fully legalized to use for any purpose in 10 states, and it's likely that more states will follow with this legislative trend in years to come, if for no other reason than to regulate its use and boost government coffers by collecting sales tax. However, just because marijuana becomes legal for people to use for whatever purpose they choose, it does not mean marijuana use will be risk-free. Similar to alcohol or cigarette use, marijuana will have both short-term and long-term health consequences. Our guest today is Laura Borgelt, professor in the Departments of Clinical Pharmacy and Family Medicine at the University of Colorado and a board-certified pharmacotherapy specialist. Dr. Borgeld has been a pioneer in women's health and in recent years has had a strong interest in marijuana-related research. I've seen Laura speak at national pharmacy conferences, and I'm always fascinated by what she has to say. So, Laura, it's great to have you on Pharmacy Forward. Thank you, Stuart, and thank you, Chase. It's wonderful to be here. I agree this is an extremely important topic. Uh, This particular topic uh, became very interesting to me in my family medicine work at AF Williams in Denver, Colorado. And one particular day, about nine years ago now, we had a medical resident who came into our precepting room telling us about a patient that she was seeing who was breastfeeding and smoking a joint per day. And that actually wasn't the most surprising part because the most surprising part was that the medical resident told the patient that that was completely fine. And I sat there in my chair thinking to myself, I'm pretty sure that's wrong, (laughs) but I don't know if it's right. And because of that, it really intrigued me in terms of how marijuana is being used uh, by a variety of people, especially in Colorado now, that legalization has been in place since 2014. So, Laura, marijuana has had a long and interesting history in the United States uh, in the 1800s. It was legal use, but starting in the 1920s and 30s with prohibition, many states enacted laws to make marijuana use illegal. And this culminated with the Controlled Substance Act in 1971, which made marijuana a Schedule I substance and essentially illegal to possess. We previously discussed the potential uses of marijuana for medical purposes in our last podcast episode. But frankly, most people use marijuana for recreational purposes. So can you give us a sense of how common marijuana use is and has use gone up in those states who have legalized it? 
That's a great question. And, you know, we really have seen an increase in the use of marijuana, or at least in the reporting of its use. We know that we have been tracking this data for actually a very long time. The National Survey on Drug Use and Health collects this data nationwide. And we have found that in the adult population, or at least those that they define to be 26 of the years of age or older, about half of them have used marijuana in their, li- in their lifetime and about 13% in the last year. What this really means is that one in seven adults have used marijuana in the last year, which is only what's being reported and is likely actually much more common than that. Um, when we go to a younger population, the prevalence is actually much higher. And in fact, for people aged 18 to 25, over half of them report using it at some point in their life. And the prevalence is is highest within this age group. We have 35% of them using it in the last year and about one in five using it in the last month. What we see since legalization is an increased use of marijuana, or again, the reporting of its use. And we have seen here in Colorado that our use among adults has uh, continued to increase over time. And our, again, our most prevalent population is that youngest group, anywhere between 18 and 25 years old. And I would actually just add that we've also seen a slight increase in those that are 65 years of age and older. So in a state like Colorado, where it's been legalized, we actually have elderly populations trying it as well. I understand it may be common for patients to use marijuana for either a medical reason or recreational purpose, Um, but what are some of the best ways to ask patients about marijuana use in a non-judgmental way? I know there are various ways marijuana can be used, uh, but how do I ask a patient about the type or frequency they use, and how do you record this information in a medical record? Well, this is a big question, and um, I would maybe I'll just take the first part of that question in terms of uh, asking the questions and how do we frame it. You know, there are a series of questions that I like to ask when I talk with patients. And as you mentioned, I think it's important that we do this in an open-ended and non-judgmental way. So to do that, I typically will begin by saying something like, you know, patients use cannabis for a lot of different conditions and for many different reasons, can you tell me for what reasons or conditions you're using the cannabis? And this really helps to open up that conversation uh, in terms of them understanding that I get it, that there may be a variety of things that they are trying to manage in choosing to use this. And once I've kind of established the medical and or the recreational reasons they're using, I try to get a little bit more information about their cannabis use. This will include things like by what method or methods do you use cannabis? We often find that patients are using more than just smoking. They may be using edibles, for example. I try to find out what they know about the product that they're using in terms of the concentrations of the cannabinoids. Do they know how much THC or CBD is in it? And then also I try to capture how often they are using cannabis. I'm trying to get here at a frequency and establish if it's occasional use or more chronic use. And so really here, I'm trying to ascertain all this information to understand what they know and then what I need to know about their use and determine how I can best assist them. The other question, especially for pharmacists, that's very relevant is asking them about other medications that they're taking. 
This really gives me a chance to screen for any drug interactions that may be occurring. Lastly, I kind of just try to go in around expectation management and, you know, what benefits are they seeing or do they expect to see by using it and what adverse effects have they been told about? Keep in mind that uh, some of this information is coming to them from the bud tenders in the dispensary and they are often or mostly not trained at all in medicine. So there are some states that have pharmacists dispensing uh, marijuana. So I really try to provide some information about expectation setting. And then lastly, when they should seek further attention. So if they have symptoms of psychosis or if they are a chronic user and have cyclic vomiting, those would be good times for them to see a provider. So these are some of the questions I use to frame the discussion, as you had asked. With regards to recording it in the medical record, it gets a little bit more tricky. For our practice, we actually record this information much like we do with tobacco or alcohol use. And we also ask it in a way of how much, not a yes or no. And of course, if they say they don't use it all, that's fine. But we ask how much tobacco do you use, how much alcohol do you use, and how much marijuana do you use. And we follow that up with a question about illegal drug use or illicit drug use. And so I think we're in a place here in Colorado where it's much easier to document that. There are some guidelines by the Federation of State Medical Boards around documentation. So for those of you who are not in states where it is legalized, I do think that you can still capture very valuable information about their medical and medication history instructions that you may have provided to the patient, including this discussion of benefits and risks, side effects that they might expect, and then the ongoing assessment and monitoring. So I really believe that we can still have a very important role in the documentation of marijuana use in their charts and especially through the education that we provide. So, Laura, I know there's a bunch of ways that people can consume marijuana. You mentioned two, which is inhaling it or edibles. And I know that marijuana is now grown in very controlled conditions, and the THC content in the marijuana plants has increased a lot over the years. So, marijuana products today are a lot more potent than they were years ago. So, let's talk about some of the different formulations and the potential health problems that people might experience based on the way they consume it. This is a great question, Stuart, and I think that we have seen a tremendous shift in products that are available. I think for those of us that were living in the 70s, 80s, 90s, it was really just smoked, but now we have virtually any formulation that we can find in the pharmacy and beyond actually available for marijuana. And I typically think of three main delivery systems for cannabis, as you mentioned, inhaling or ingesting through edibles. And then we also have topical or buccal administration. For inhaling, it can mean smoking or vaping. And smoking certainly remains the most common uh, with about 55% of cannabis users reporting that they smoke it. Actually here in Colorado, it's upwards of 85% of users will smoke it. But vaping is another inhalation method that's maybe viewed to be a little bit safer than smoking. In vaping, we actually activate the cannabis, but the noxious chemicals are not released as they are in smoking. When we look at eating or drinking, we have foods, we have sodas, we have virtually every form of candy or sweet that you can imagine that can be filled with uh, marijuana as well. 
We also have tinctures and oral mucosal sprays. Those are really intended for buccal absorption and tend to be used more in the medical space, but these are readily available in dispensaries as well. And then lastly, we have more topical formulations such as lotions, creams, lip balms, even suppositories. But again, these are typically not used recreationally. And Stuart, you mentioned uh, the potency issue and this is really a a significant shift from the good old days. Um, Back in the 60s or 70s, the average THC content was 2 to 3%. In the 1990s, it had doubled to about 4%. And then now more in recent years, it has exponentially increased. And so now that the average potency of THC is anywhere between 18 and 20%. And so potency now is just so different than it was kind of back in the day. We do see recreational use through a method called dabbing, which is a very high potency THC extract, an oil extract. And in these products, the average content can contain over 50% THC. And in fact, in samples here in Colorado, I've seen them as high as 90 or 95%. And this is really concerning because the acute effects of a high-potency THC product can lead to psychotic symptoms. These can include hallucinations or paranoia, delusional beliefs, and while it is self-limiting, these effects can be much higher with higher doses. And so this leads me to kind of other problems in terms of the variety of formulations. We certainly, as I mentioned, have many formulations available, but it's really the edibles for me that are most concerning. Obviously, they look much like many other foods that kids would eat, cookies, brownies, gummy bears, gummy worms. These foods look very similar to our regular foods. And we've seen a significant increase in the number of unintentional exposures in our kids when they've eaten the marijuana and it has not been stored properly. So this can be prevented, but of course, we also have to work on improving that. Also, when marijuana is smoked or vape, the THC will reach the bloodstream pretty quickly, within minutes. And this allows for people to really kind of self-titrate what they consume. But with the edibles, it goes through the GI tract, the liver metabolizes the THC, and it can take anywhere from 30 minutes up to two or even reports up to four hours before the clinical effect can be seen. And because of this, it can result in overdosing, whereby someone takes a bite of a cookie or a bite of a brownie and they're anticipating an effect, but they don't feel that effect. So they may take another bite and they wait a little bit longer and they still don't feel that effect. So they take another bite. And by the time the effects of the THC are felt, the user can experience an overdose where they have very unpleasant or even psychotic symptoms. And so I think these edibles, for me in particular, present additional concerns when they're used recreationally. Laura, with the varying THC concentrations found in these variety of formulations, it's no secret that many individuals may experience some of these unintentional short-term consequences. Now, I'm wondering more about the long-term health consequences with marijuana use. I assume that, like alcohol use, there are many health problems that can develop with long-term marijuana use. What are some of the consequences you are most concerned about when it comes to long-term marijuana use? particularly for those who use marijuana on a regular basis. 
I have to just disclose here that most of what I have learned around marijuana and THC comes from the work that I've done with our Colorado State Health Department. We actually have published a retail marijuana public health advisory guideline, and this comes from a committee of medical experts. And so we really have looked at a variety of different topics uh, regarding the concerns in the public health arena for long-term use. And I think if I were to prioritize some of those issues, I think the first would really be the neurocognitive or mental health problems that we might see. And you mentioned the kind of daily or regular user. And we have strong evidence that shows that people who use marijuana daily or near daily are more likely to have impaired memory. And this can last for a time even more than a week after they've quit. This chronic use can also be associated with schizophrenia. And there are some data that say that if we have patients who are susceptible to schizophrenia, they may be more likely to develop schizophrenia at an earlier age. Finally, we see that there is evidence that marijuana is is addictive. Um, Some of the websites that we might go to will tout that it's not addictive. In fact, national data indicate the addiction rate's about 9%, which is lower than tobacco or, or alcohol. But this is still an addictive substance. That risk is higher in adolescence, where the addiction rate's about 14%. And so this really kind of brings me to the next concern that I have, which is use of marijuana in adolescents or young adults. As many of you know, the developing brain continues until about 25 years of age. And so the impact of marijuana on that developing brain can have detrimental effects. We see that weekly use by adolescents is associated with deficits in learning, memory, math, and reading skills. Uh, We also see that this type of use lessens the graduation rates from high school. So I think that what we really want to pay attention to is this developing brain in the adolescent and young in young adults and when we we know that when they abstain or quit that it can help and we of course want that to happen but we really want to be preventing exposure to that developing brain and that brings me then to maybe my final concern and again with my experience in women's health in terms of the use of marijuana in pregnancy and lactation We know that THC readily passes through the placenta. It also readily passes through the breast milk. That has to do with it being a very lipophilic substance. We see from the data that there can be associations of increased risk of heart defects. There is also a decreased growth and impaired cognitive function and attention for these babies when the mother is using marijuana. Lastly, There are some data that suggest decreased academic ability or increased depression symptoms later on as they proceed into adolescence. And so I think that what we see here is really a timeline of potential mental health effects that begin in pregnancy that can go all the way through to adulthood. Now, in this report, we do mention other health consequences, such as association with chronic bronchitis, as you might expect, smoking, this can include cough wheezing and mucus, which are some of our typical symptoms. And then in the more acute realm, we have seen an increase in motor vehicle crashes. And so we're really uh, concerned about the safety of people. We actually look at other safety-sensitive activities here in Colorado, ski accidents, bike accidents, and things like that. So we actually recommend that people wait at least six hours if you've smoked marijuana or eight hours if you have eaten marijuana before you engage in any safety-sensitive activities, including driving. 
So, Laura, one of the things that I'm worried about is drug interactions. Uh, most of the patients I've seen in my practice take multiple medications. So the potential for interactions with marijuana is very real. But frankly, I don't know if my fears are unfounded. Should I be concerned? Yes, I think you should be concerned. Uh, we know that THC goes through the cytochrome P450 system. And because of that, drug interactions can occur with marijuana. And I, I want to highlight that most of the data we have thus far is with THC. We have some data with CBD, but again, in this recreational context, we're really primarily talking about THC as the active ingredient that may be susceptible to drug interactions. You may have seen a, a very recent study that evaluated drug interactions between marijuana and CNS sedatives. They actually found that patients who regularly use cannabis required a higher amount of sedation for endoscopic procedures. And this included more fentanyl, more midazolam, and even over 200% more propofol. And so this may have been due to some interacting receptors, but it could have also been due to this metabolism in the, in the cytochrome P450 system, as I mentioned. Now, THC is metabolized by CYP2C9 and 3A4, and I'm sure for all of you, those enzymes ring a bell. Uh, they're very prevalent with many other medications. We do see that when CYP2C9 inhibitors are used, can increase the THC concentrations, in fact, in some cases, up to threefold higher. When we look at other agents that are inducers, we can see THC levels go down. In cases of rifampin, these levels can reduce by 20 to 40%. The other one is warfarin. We don't fully know the extent of the reason for that interaction, but we commonly will see an enhanced anticoagulation effect where an INR increase occurs. So monitoring that INR is really important. And really, we want to make sure that people quit marijuana as the best solution to maintain that goal INR. Now, lastly, I just want to have people keep in mind that marijuana is sedating. And when we have concurrent use of any CNS depressant, it could result in additive drowsiness. So this would include things like alcohol, opioids, sedative hypnotics, benzodiazepines, and again, could put them at risk for potential impairments when they drive cars or operate other machinery. Laura, this has been really fascinating discussion, and personally, I wasn't aware of many of these issues, including the drug interactions you just mentioned. So I'm wondering what you believe is the role of pharmacists and what role they should take in when it comes to recreational and medical use of marijuana. You know, I think, as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, we have some states that are supporting pharmacist dispensing of cannabis for medical purposes. And I think that's a really good start because they'll be educated in this space. But I really think that every pharmacist has an important public health role for safety and harm reduction. It can include counseling both medical and recreational users on how to minimize their risks, as well as counseling how cannabis can impact their existing medical conditions or medication therapy. I think there's a unique opportunity for pharmacists to conduct research and as we talked about earlier, really document what we are noticing in the community. You know, as the most accessible healthcare provider, we often will be the touch point for patients talking to us about using cannabis. But I really think as we started the beginning of this podcast, it's only when we choose to ask these open-ended questions and engage in conversations about what our patients are doing that we'll begin to contribute to their positive health and well-being. 
Laura, this has been really fascinating discussion. And just to summarize, as recent statistics have shown, marijuana use is very common in the United States. There are more ways to use marijuana than ever before. With higher potency formulations available today, potential users need to be aware of the significant short-term and long-term consequences of marijuana use. Pharmacists can play an important public health role by screening patients for marijuana use, educating their patients about the impacts of cannabis, and participating in research to improve patient care. Well, Laura, it's been a pleasure to have you on the Pharmacy Forward podcast, and thank you. Yes, thank you so much, Laura, for being here today. I've learned a lot. Thanks for listening to Pharmacy Forward, a podcast about transforming knowledge into action. If you like this podcast, please subscribe using your favorite podcast app and tell all of your pharmacy friends and colleagues. Be sure to rate us and send us your feedback. We'd love to hear from you. If you have a story you'd like to share about someone who's transforming knowledge into action, send us an email. Pharmacy Forward is produced by the Division of Pharmacy Professional Development at the University of Mississippi School of Pharmacy. For more information about our professional development programs, visit pharmacycpd.org. That's pharmacycpd.org. This episode was conceived and developed by Chase Board, Lily Van Chang, Ha Fan, Alex Mills, Megan Brown, Lori Fleming, Josh Fleming, and Stuart Haynes.